Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. Today is called The Awkward Conversation. Because for me, the very first conversations around sex was a very awkward conversation with my parents in my room with a very awkward little book that made no sense to me. Like nothing. You would have thought by the fourth kid, they might have got a little bit better at it. But for me, talking about sex was a very awkward conversation with my dad, who, an Afrikaans man, and his parents definitely didn't speak to him about sex. And, but my mom told him he had to speak to me about sex. But you could see she was carrying the conviction. You know that conversation. Do it, Abe. Do it. Well, boy. One of those. But today we're not going to have an awkward conversation. And for the next couple of weeks, we're not going to have an awkward conversation because I believe it's very important that the church are speaking about sex and sexuality. Why? Because everyone else's. You know, speaking about sex, those that are having it and those that aren't. Those that want to have it and those that aren't really sure whether they do or some that are just over it. I've had all those conversations with all those people. They are having the conversation. And everyone is having the conversation. Those Everyone has an opinion. They have an opinion on gender issues. They have an opinion on what it is and what isn't sex and what, what age is right and what action is appropriate and what is good and healthy for life and fruitfulness in this area. You hear what we cannot deny? We cannot deny that we are, God has given us sexuality. It wasn't a curse. It didn't come as part of Genesis 3. It came as part of Genesis 1 and 2. God gave us sexuality. And God created, and at the end of Genesis 1, it says that everything he said is good. That word is tobe or tov. It means abundantly good, excessively good, incredibly good. And God gave a good gift when he gave sexuality. He didn't give a burden to carry, oh, my sexual frustrations and all these burdens that I'm carrying and all these urges. and all. No, no, it was never meant to be that. But everyone's having the conversation, and everyone has a view or a belief system about it, whether you think you don't or not. You have a belief system, and when you have a belief system, you actually have a theology. You have an orthodoxy, what you believe that determines your orthopraxy, how you will practice that. And that is what we will hand on to the next generation. It's really important that just because everyone else is talking about it, that's not why we're talking about it. We're talking about it because Jesus has an opinion, because God placed us and gave us a gift. See, there's a lot of pain in the sexually broken, and there's joy at the same time and exhilaration at those that are entertaining and engaging, like married couples on early days when they've walked a pure road of dating and that. There's exhilaration, and and there's both. As we engage a conversation like that, in this room there is pain and there is exhilaration. There's things happening in our world like the Me Too campaign where the Kevin Spaceys in the world and, and Bill Cosby's are becoming abusers and things are getting highlighted. And every time you hear the word sex, you hear abuse. That's what we're getting told. We, we read the newspapers and there are Catholic priest scandals all over America now where there have been cover-ups for decades and centuries. And the world is looking at the church and saying, you the guys who've got it the most wrong. You're the guys that are covering it up. You're the guys that are messing it up. The church aren't speaking now. We'll lose our voice forever. God has called us to speak into life, into freedom. To have not opinions, but His Word and truth for life. 
so that our generation and the generations to come can encounter Him. In our schools, what is celebrated and what is it? In sports, it's sexually determined participation. There's freedom and choice. Today I choose to be male. Today, tomorrow I choose to be female. And on Wednesday, I'll be intersex. That's happening in our primary schools. I'm not here to slate schools. I'm here to present a gospel that speaks into every area of life and to place us on a firm foundation because on this area, unfortunately, sexuality is killing us, the church. The stats aren't much different. Pornography addiction, not much different in the American church because they're the only church with statistics. But divorce and brokenness and premarital sex, all these issues that are popping up that are concerns and bring brokenness and don't reflect His glory, unfortunately, the stats aren't that different in the church. A guy, Ben Patterson, puts it this way, because the few things that bring as much pleasure and as much pain as sexual, sexuality and sex. Ben Patterson puts it this way, it's risky to talk about the goodness of sex these days. Because ours is an age of sexual hyperbole. It's like saying the bulls are incredibly good. It's like, sorry, rugby and that, just to lighten the mood, I think I might have got a bit excited. A hyperbole is when you make a bigger statement than it actually is to drive a point home. But we live in an age of sexual hyperbole. Never before in history has the goddess of sex offered so much with so little to give. Never before has sexual pleasure been sought with such effort and at such a price. Never before has so much merchandise been moved on the implicit promise that it will make you more sexy or get you more sex. Sex is a religion of our world. It is worshipped, preached, exhorted, supported, and encouraged. It has its own denominations. I am heterosexual, homosexual, intersexual. I am bisexual. I am anything I want to be. It has its own communities. So what does sex preach? Well, it preaches a whole bunch of things, but it doesn't preach there's freedom and life at the end of this tunnel. Just preach, live for today, and tomorrow's coming, but it, I don't promise you anything for tomorrow. I promise you something now. It's casual sex. Where it's, it's, it's intimacy without strings at the end of this story. But get out what you can today. It's short-term, it's limited, and it won't bring freedom and life. And it's... Actually, you need to check that you're sexually compatible. And you read the Cosmo and the men's health, and the men's health is telling you, actually, you've got to test out the engine, you know. It's like buying a car. You've got to go for a test drive, and you've got to live together, and you go on all these journeys. And it makes more sense financially, and it makes more sense on lots of levels, but it doesn't line up to the firm foundation of God's Word and His best in terms of the gift that He has given. It's about me. It's about my sexual needs, and sex doesn't mean commitment, and Actually, other realities, you're never too young to try new things. See, we've all gone on a sexual formation process, all of us. And whether you are a boomer and grew up a few years ago, or you are a millennial or a zennial or whatever these new names are, you've had a sexual formation process with very different influences. My process started, like I said, with a very awkward conversation with a very weird book from my parents. Sitting in my room, I remember it like I was, it was yesterday. And um, I'm not sure I was ready. I was quite an innocent. All I, I went in Durban, you don't have girls in school with you. They are single-sex schools. So girls are not really a thing. TV was like 2 o'clock to 5 o'clock, and it was loving. It was like as racy as it got on TV. 
So my world was very narrow and small as a young boy. All I cared about were rugby balls and cricket balls. Cricket, baller, you know, all that. And uh, yeah, see, now yokes have come alive. And um, internet wasn't a thing. There were no pop-ups happening in my world. There were no cell phones sending me messages and bombarding me with images. There were less billboards that suggested a whole bunch of things as we drove to school every day. My first encounter of some material in sex wasn't pornography. It was a marriage counseling book that my parents used with marriage counseling called Intended for Pleasure. And as an inquisitive, young, very young teenager, sneaking into the room, parents away, looking at Intended for Pleasure, fortunately, the graphics were so bad, it couldn't really tell you much. But it, it gave you enough to ignite questions and inquisitiveness because God gave a good gift. I want to be inquisitive. A gift is like the thing that's a Christmas. It's sitting under the tree going, what's inside? What's inside? What's inside? And you're shaking it and you're holding it. You, you don't want to open it because you know that's going to ruin the surprise. But you want to shake it. You want to know what's inside even though you don't. It's like that. And so for me, that's where that started. And then, and then there was a whole next level called boarding school. It's like a whole other world opened up. And a spirit of lust over a house of 140 boys that you couldn't escape. And protected by his blood and washed by a mother's prayers and a whole bunch of stuff. You could not escape an atmosphere and an environment dominated by lust for something people were just inquisitive for. And then church didn't help because the only conversation I ever heard, the only preach I ever heard in terms of sexuality happened on an exclusive meeting, meaning you had to be between 17 and 23. You could come to this meeting. It happened on a Thursday night. So there were like a hundred of us arrived, you know, like even less. And we walked in and on the whiteboard was the statement, question, how low can you go? That was the preach title. And there were numbers one to 10 on the board. I'm not going to give you the details. I'm just going to tell you I was a little disappointed how low you could go. So it wasn't very low in my estimation as an inquisitive teenager. And it didn't, I didn't leave that room feeling very free, to be honest. I felt like there's the limitations, there's the smallness, and don't. But no, don't. But I want to, no, don't. There was no freedom. There was no liberty. There was no good God behind a good gift with an equipping to help me walk into that gift as a son. The next encounter of sex at church was at premarital counseling. Like right at the game. Well, it's coming now. We better tell them something. And it was like, I'm sitting with my pastors. I'm hugging the cushion. And it's like, whoa, this is too much detail. All of a sudden, I thought, it's just going to happen. But it's very late in the game. We've dated for three years. It's very late in the game. And I, I'm grateful to say, and this is not a boast or anything, I got married a virgin by the grace of God and the grace of God alone. And when those moments got pushed and when we were close to moments, there were the fears of a mother's prayers all those years. But most of us have to go on an unlearning and an uninforming journey so that we can begin to learn His ways and be reformed, even if we are 50 and been in the game a while, 60, 70, 40, 25. Even if we think we got all the answers and we're on a journey. And I'm married now, so you don't need to talk to me about sexual formation. I'm telling you, all of us need it. See, because formation these days happens differently. 
It's the eight-year-old who's watching a YouTube video and full-on pornography pops into their world uninvited because there is an enemy with strategies, new strategies, and it's the thousands of images, many of them sexualized, from sneakers to whatever subject you're selling, sex sells. It's just what you do. It's just... It's the TV show that comes on and the parental locks aren't there and there's thousands of images. It's the advertising banners. It's the rock stars and the example of the heroes that the world looks up to. It's the generally absent, generally not always loving parents trying to have conversations but modeling brokenness in a world where there's just brokenness in this area. And I'm telling you the days of one-off birds and bees conversation. Anyone else have the birds and the bees conversation? They don't work anymore. You can't have one-off conversations. There is an ongoing conversation that starts at a very, very young age of engagement, of walking these things through. And I'm not saying I've done it right. I just know we have to step up a gear if the church are going to find freedom and life in these areas and then be able to lead the world in this area because I promise you right now, we're not leading in this area. And most of the time, it's because we don't know how to have the awkward conversation. The tough conversation with each other in a marriage context of covenant, people don't know how to have the conversation. They don't know how to have the conversations as friends. They don't know how to have the conversations as young people. What are the right conversations? What's the right tone? What's the truth? Formation has happened in all of us, but God wants us to be renewed in all things. Revelations 21, a promise, a vision of what is coming. He will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. That is the promise to come, and it is also the promise today. God will make all things new. The point of the series is not to bring condemnation. It's actually the opposite freedom and life. And that might be a journey of conviction under the Holy Spirit. That might be a confrontation with truth and lies that we've adopted. But if we go on that journey, we trust God. There is freedom. There is life. There is a journey of restoration. The promise of our God who does what He says He will do. He restores. You know what else He does in the Word? He renames. He gives people new names. And in this place, I want to tell you as we engage... My iPad has just died. Stay with me. But he gives new names in these stories. And he wants to give some people even here in our context, in our church, new names. Where before it was broken, where before it was cheap, he wants to give the name precious. To the loose, he wants to give the name loved. To the used, he wants to call perfect. To the common, He wants to give the name precious. For the unlovable, he wants to remind you that you are loved forever. This is not about condemnation. This is about freedom. And giving freedom to a world who are looking for answers. They are looking for leaders. They are looking for people who have answers in a world that has no answers. There is no firm foundation in the promise that the world is making around sexuality. And lastly, we worship a God who resurrects. Maybe your marriage in this area is dead. Maybe your emotions and sexuality has become disconnected from emotions because of pain and you've learned a coping mechanism which is just to disengage and think that's fine. It's not fine because God gave you a gift. 
He wants you to enjoy and walk in freedom and life and see others walk in freedom and life. You see, God designed, and in the beginning, this is how our Bible starts, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's the very start of the book. God is a creator. He was there in the beginning. And then there's this idiom that was used in the heavens and the earth. What do the heavens and the earth mean? Well, it just means everything. Everything. The heavens and the earth, everything, including sexuality. God created everything. And then he gives us our first command as mankind. Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. He blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. God's first mandate, his first instruction, his first command to men is have sex. Thank you. It's our worship leader. Just agreeing with the point. I'm telling you. It wasn't be fearful. No, don't. What are the responses of the church? Stay away. Stay far away. No, it's be fruitful and multiply. You cannot do that. Bye. Yeah, we're not going to go there. I'm going to leave that point. But you get the point. And then verse 31 straight off said, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. It was exceedingly abundantly good. Good has become such a blah word. Spectacular. Abundant. In everything that he has designed, he has made our physical bodies good. And he knew that they were made not just for procreation, but for pleasure. And I'm going to explain that a little later. And I want to throw that back in the mix that God gave a good gift and part of it is pleasure because he is a God of eternal pleasures. But there are boundaries and there are ways and there are his designs that are important because he is a designer. He's a God of enjoyment. Genesis 2, and things are still looking great. Verse 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she is taken out of a man. The first love poem written. That is why man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. They become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. That's the design. That's, that's what God had in mind. This is before Genesis 3 and the fall and sin. God put a plan in place. He put a design in place. They said, actually, I want husband and wife come together. They will be naked and there will be zero shame. And all sexuality is about now is shame and guilt. And people are walking around with these trailers of shame and guilt and past experiences and things they wish that they hadn't done. And things they wish they hadn't given away at young ages. And things they wish they hadn't done to appease other people and to make sure people thought they were cool. And God said, that was never my design. That was never my plan. I will resurrect and I will rename because I am the God of eternal pleasure and I'm in control still. And if my people will bow their knees and worship me and trust me and place their trust upon this firm foundation, there is freedom, life, and liberty. And they conceived a world to that destination. God's plan. It's not seen as sexy these days. Get a wife, settle down, have babies. 
I sit with young people, oh, I, I want to live for Jesus. What does that mean? Well, it means I'm not going to settle for white picket fence and I'm not going to settle for three kids and a baby and, and basically everything I've done. Well, uh, no, that's not what I mean. No, no. God's mandate is fill the earth. Oh, but, but what about there are too many babies in the world? Yes, that's why adoption is part of the story. And it's glorious but God still says, I want fruitfulness from the intimacy that I give because there's fruitfulness in my intimacy in your life all the time. But there, there's some essentials. If you're having a conversation with a, a child, have all the birds and bees and use the words that need to be used and explain all the anatomy stuff that needs to be explained. But there's some big truths that as the church, we've got to put on top of that, which are these. God created men and women to be different and unique we are ontologically equal. In essence, we are equal in every way, but we are economically different. We play different parts. And God has designed it as such. And our freedom comes in our ability to celebrate His design and play our part in His design and drink our full of His design and find freedom in His design because I am not the designer and neither are you. If we were so clever, we would have made ourselves. We would have designed the hairs, brown hair, brown eyes, Kind of funny little nose on the end of the face. We would have designed all that ourselves, and yet he says, you're not the designer. I am. And then there's this other big truth that God made sex, and it is good. Actually, it's very good. Just because the world has messed it up, we don't get to do what the world does like they do with everything else. Well, marriage, we're going to throw it out. 50% divorce. It cannot be good. And we respond in every way. Now, our job is to place our trust upon Him who is a firm foundation and His design that He's never made mistakes, that He's in control. And when we will keep throwing ourselves back into Him and trusting Him, there is freedom in life. And we call the series Sex on Sundays because, well, just to have fun, I suppose, at one level. But it's part of everyday life. It's part of our truth. And it's everything that God has for us in everything. But... The challenge is there's been this great reversal. God has designed in His Word a, a way of life that looks like this. I'm incredibly generous with my finances and incredibly stingy with my sexuality. And the world is shouting, be incredibly stingy with your finances and be incredibly generous with your sexuality. And God says, I want to get my people back to a place where they trust me and they buy into the economics of heaven rather than the economics of earth that bring death. And there's a whole bunch of areas in between. So take a step back. Consider these perspectives, pastor. What about the forbidden fruit? What about the reality that surely God doesn't want me to just have sex and make love to one person for the rest of my life? How boring. No, he does. And it's exhilarating and it's glorious. And there will be an intimacy and a reflection of heaven and a sign and one to the world that bring glory to his name when that is your testimony and your story. Tell your 10-year-olds that. And there will be freedom in their life. Oh, pastor, surely, surely a long-term marriage, you know, there's, you need to bring some things in to spice it up. Cosmo said, if you bring someone else in, if you bring some pornography in, if you just add a little spice of life to it. No. Humble yourself before God, a creative God, who will give you creativity to spice up your life with your marriage, with honest communication and doing the hard yards of reality rather than bringing a surrogate in to spice it up. I just want to talk it like it is because these are the things that I get told by believers. People have all, well, you got to, you don't buy a car. Did you test drive your car before you bought your car, pastor? Well, I did. 
But I didn't buy a car when I got married. I got into a covenant where God is in the story and he says, I will be with you and I will equip you and I will be faithful in every story. And your marriages will have some lows and your marriage will have some highs. But the journey is one of pursuing God. Oh, well, let's get a little crazier because surely God didn't give me this innate curiosity of sexuality. Surely I've got to express that and, and go on journeys that the world actually applauds. Surely, if I, if I just go down a road of, of testing the waters of homosexuality because I haven't been able to pull off other relationships, it's not actually going to hold me if God's actually designed me on these things, so I'm going to go a journey. Guys, I've heard it all. And you have too. You just don't always, it's not always put to you that directly. Well, surely if I, if I just, if my marriage gets stale, well, what's the problem with the swinging party? It's like a mulligan in golf. You just, we'll just move on. You just forget about it. Well, surely that conversation doesn't end there. It's got to carry on. Well, what happens when all those sexual orientations become boring? What happens when everything else becomes boring? Well, when does bestiality that's in the Bible presented in chaos? And when does a whole bunch of other things that's presented, when does that stop? Where is that line? Well, the line is over here. It's in, I will build my house upon the firm foundation of his word. And there's no other way presented. This is not, I'm so fearful of sin. This is how glorious is God and he will sustain me. And in every part of me, I'm sustained by the glory of God. It is a high view of who God is and the promise of his intimacy in my life and our lives. And what he's calling us to. See, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 14, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. He's not denying that we have weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let us approach the throne of grace. What happens with sin? It makes me reproach. I don't even know if that's a word. That one. He says, no, let us approach the throne of grace. You're struggling today? You did something last night that right now you feel like the spotlight's on you and somehow I orchestrated this whole preach just for you. I've been that guy at church, that naughty 17-year-old teenager at school going, hmm, pastor, if you don't know what I thought of last night. I don't, but he does. He says, will you approach the throne of grace and receive grace and freedom and life? And when you approach the throne of grace, you get Jesus as your portion and he is glorious. See, in the series, all we're wanting to do is approach the throne of grace with confidence. Oh, but pastor, the Bible says all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Well, you're right. But here's the challenge. There's a couple of differences between sexual sin and other sin. So the, oh, there's no difference, pastor. What about the guy who, who jumped the stop street? It's no difference to me just sleeping with my girlfriend a couple times. Well, actually, it is different, sir or ma'am. Bible says this. See, in every area to temptation, the Bible says resist temptation. But in the area of sexuality, in 1 Corinthians 16, says flee from sexual immorality. Flee. There's a resisting that looks like this. Fleeing looks like this. Get out of Dodge. Don't care what they think. Get out of there. And as I stand before you, I might have got... Married a virgin, but I fleed a few times. 
not always proud of how those occasions came around, but they're flea moments in all our lives and flea opportunities to submit ourselves to the Word of God. And then there's another thing. It says, actually, continues, all other sins a person commits are outside their body. Body meaning socks, meaning everything that is broken, everything about us, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. There's a higher level of impact of sexual sin. Not only are you pulling down yourself, you're pulling down others. And when young people choose to disobey the word of God and sleep together and fall pregnant and then start approaching decisions like abortion, there is chaos happening. And it's even worse when it's rebellion within his church and his people, those who have access to his throne of grace, but we run the other way. Now, if you've had an abortion, this is the right place. Approach the throne of grace, but walk free and forward as he resurrects your story. And give courage to others. This church has a couple of postures, and this is where I'll land in the next five minutes. The first one is this. We hide away because of fear. We just hide away. We, we surround ourselves. We hide ourselves away from media, our children away from the Word. The world, in the delusion that in our hiding we are safe. The church has tried to do it. There was this great Christian leader, scholar. His name was Jerome. He created the Latin translation that was used for a thousand years. But behind the scenes, as he writes later in his life, he struggled with lust his whole life. And within a world of, of celibacy and a world where a priest could not engage in any sexual realities, this was his testimony. I was plagued by sexual fantasies. Remember, his translation was used for a thousand years in the church. I often found myself surrounded by bands of dancing girls. He fasted to the point of starving himself in an attempt to control his temptations. My face was pale with fasting, but through my limb, though my limbs were cold as ice, my mind was burning with desire, and the fires of lust kept bubbling up before me when my flesh was as good as dead. See, he was wrestling his temptations, and he turned his passions towards studying Hebrews, and out of his own fear that he might digress and fall away, he began fear-mongering in his theology in the church. And the result was mandates and edicts coming to the church that looked like this. And, and he had such a high view of, of celibacy that marriage became just above fornication. He, he put values to things like um, for women. He said a um, hundred values, spiritual values to virgins, 60 for widows, and 30 to married women, ranking them just above fornication. Sorry, married ladies, sorry. But he put all this fear-mongering in the church, and he put this statement, anyone who is too passionate, a lover with his own wife, is himself an adulterer. It's not in the Bible, guys. Not even close. But fear drives us to bad places. And there's a whole bunch of things that followed. It was more fear. And the church authorities issued edicts, forbidding sex on Thursdays, the day of the Lord's arrest, on Fridays, the day of his death, on Saturdays, in honor of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and on Sundays, in honor of our departed saints. He probably wouldn't have responded well to sex on Sundays as a name for a series. On Wednesdays, often we're out, and then there were those three 40-day fasts a year. And the end result is you've got 44 days of the year in which, within marriage, you can make love. Sorry if you work distant on those days. All of that was done away with, by the way, thank you to what God did through the Reformation and Martin Luther, and all of that was done away with. But why did that even come about is because of fear. 
And I'm telling you, fear is not a Christian response to the issue and the overwhelming destruction of sexuality at this time. Fear is not a response, not with your children, not with yourself, not in your marriage. Fear is not the response, and it's not the posture that he's called us to. Because John 1, 4, 1 John 4 verse 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Fear is not a response of my people. So what do we do then? Well, the other option is to run free. Oh, it says for freedom that Christ has set me free. I'm going to run. I'm young. God will forgive me on the other side of my trespasses. Well, there's a very big warning in the area of sexuality that Jesus gives. Again, hyperbole. He says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for, you to may, than for your whole body to go into hell. What do you do with that? You just, we just pass over that one. I'm just going to glide past. No, Jesus is using hyperbole. He's saying actually the implications are eternal and there is an eternal perspective that too many are missing. You see, both your hand and your eye are useful for life. So is the internet. So is the men's health. So is a whole bunch of things useful for life. But if those things are taking your body into destruction, your soul, your every part of you, cut them off. Oh, but you can't ask me to get rid of myself and how will people communicate with me? So you'd rather lose your soul. So you'd rather be addicted and let someone else go on than lose yourself and I throw that thing into the sea. Like cutting out your eye if it is causing you to stumble. I wouldn't advocate that, by the way. He is making a point. He is calling us to freedom and life because Jesus understood eternity and Jesus knew what he was dying for. And he didn't want the church to hide and run around. And there's the biggest words that we will ever hear on the other side. The big why is, well done, my good and faithful servant. And he's not going to say those, that just to those who didn't struggle. I think that well done is to everyone who did. But who fought the good fight. Who pressed into him. Who placed their lives upon a firm foundation. When the storms came and said, I'm going to trust this God. I'm going to trust this king for freedom and life. Oh, Mark, you don't know what it's like. You got married at 25. You don't know what it's like. No, one of my best friends got married at 38. And I walked his 30s with him. And he went through stages of hating marriage and hating this and feeling bondage and a whole life. And I know it's difficult. But also, no, the treasures in heaven are things we don't know about. And there'll be treasures in heaven for journeys that are difficult. That on earth don't get value. But God's value system of heaven is different. And the last one is we choose not to, des- to trust Him. We think, oh, well, sexuality, God made procreation. He just didn't think about these urges. He didn't know that ner- nerve endings are a thing or erogenous zones are a thing. I mean, God didn't know that. No, I think He knew every single one of them because He designed them. He understood them and said, I'm going to put a design in play. I'm going to put a playbook out there. If you follow the playbook on the other side, there'll be like, who reads the manuals for every appliance they buy? Anyone? It's easier to pick up Google, look for Samsung's customer care and phone them and say, I have a problem. 
And then they ask you a question, did you read the manual? They say, no, actually, I threw it away with the box. Can you help me? I'm customer care a lot of the time. And I ask, did you read the manual? His word, did you trust the man? No, I actually threw it away. Never really engaged. I thought I would just stumble onto it. He says, no, no, no. You've got to read the manual. You've got to find that there's a creator who is perfect in all his ways. And everything he places in your path is good for you. Whether it is a mountain to climb or a valley to go through, there is freedom in life. And I learned this at a young age. When I was 11 years old, I went away with the family. We went away with every holiday. Our best friends. And my best friend was a 12-year-old girl named Michelle. And some of you have heard this testimony. But my family were at the bottom of Monkskarl Waterfall in, in Drakensberg. And my dad and her family were picking us up at the top. My dad said, walk the path, stay on the path, don't go near the river. Walk the path, stay on the path. Do, do I need to come with you? No, no, we're big now, we can go. And um, we walked the path. It's a long way up, it's 13-story waterfall. We walked the path around, my dad was watching us the whole way, well done, well done. And we got out of sight, he thought we'd gone. Until Michelle realized there were stones in her shoes. And so she walked into the river to wash her feet, and she slipped. And a current she could not control took her. And I ran to try and save her, and a policewoman tackled me to the ground. And she went over a waterfall, 13 stories, landed on rocks below. And she died. See, one decision brings death. One decision of 15 minutes of intimacy at the end of a good date because you feel a connection is not a reason to run into a storm or a raging river. It's a reason to run into the arms of Jesus and trust him that he's the God of eternal pleasure and life and he loves you and he's faithful and kind. See, that one decision sent my dad into Yapiku for seven years. He couldn't get out of bed before 10. He went back to bed at 3 o'clock because of guilt and shame. Caused chaos in their family. One decision. And we so often think one decision doesn't make a difference. It makes every difference. And the things we think we give away, we think we can get them back. I don't have time to preach it, but I want to read a scripture to you. Psalm 16. Psalm of David. A psalm presenting a posture towards trusting God. Keep me safe, O my God. For in you I take refuge. Who's your refuge today? Young people, single, married, struggling with desire. And maybe that desire is not for your wife right now, for your husband. I say to the Lord, see the Lord. See, Jesus is Savior and He's King, but He's also Lord. And He wants to be Lord of your life. And David knew this. And David became a king we know about because he knew Jesus as Lord. He said, you are my Lord Apart from you, I have no good thing. See, other things look good, but apart from God, there is no good thing. Because everything that is apart from God is of another kingdom called the kingdom of Satan. It leads to death and darkness. It says, I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. David makes a, a decision. He says, I just won't do it. He says, Lord, you alone of my portion and my cup. 
or my portion. See, when I was 17 years old, 18 years old, and I'm in boarding school, my friends are doing all sorts of things on Friday nights and Saturday nights. I think my portion is not fair. I want to experience what they are experiencing because I feel like I'm missing out. And then I'm reminded that I'm a son of God and God has my portion and my cup. He says, you make my lot secure. You know what a lot is? A lot is, you remember when the disciples drew lots? A lot is something you draw. It's like a lucky packet. But I want to tell you in God, our lot is not a lottery. Our, God, our lot is in his love. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. See, in the front row are two young kids that are not kids anymore. And I know that God has a delightful inheritance for them. And I'll preach this till the end of my days because I've also seen the chaos that comes when the enemy gets in. And we don't trust that inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me even at night. My heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my, God, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will, you let, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You made me known to the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. We worship a God of pleasure. He is not stingy. He is generous. If you will trust him. Mark, you don't know what it's I know if you will trust him, there is eternal pleasure in him that he wants to reveal. Because he is a God of pleasure who gave a good gift called sex and sexuality. Let us be the ones who keep reminding the world that there is a different way, a way that leads to life and freedom. If you're here today and you're scared about the series and you're wrestling because there's guilt and shame, I promise you, approach the throne of grace. Approach it. Take the first step. And leave behind a lie. There's freedom in Jesus.